Well, good morning, everyone. Ah, that's, a, that's a good way to start. Thanks, guys. Great stuff from the musos. Give them a hand as they, as they go. If you don't know me, my name is Mark, and I only come to church here when I preach. All the other, all the other Sundays I go to coffee shops. No, no, that's actually not true. I'm normally at Collingwood Park. I'm John and Francine's fourth child, and I'm the guardian while they're not there. <laughs> but, so, but every once in a while I get to come up here and, uh, and to bring the Word of God. And it seems a while since I've been, it seems such a long time since I've been here that I feel like I should take a new person's pack. What do you think? <laughs> Just to get the Freddo. Yeah. yeah. Don't you love that song that we just sang? It is well with my soul. Christine DeMarco's new words with Horatio Spafford's old chorus. Don't you love his name? Horatio Spafford. It it sounds like something you'd call someone you don't like. You Spafford. (laughs) Great song. But today is what day? Palm Sunday. It's, It's not something we focus on a lot, but I'd like to this morning. Palm Sunday starts off what, what used to be known as Holy Week. It still is in, in some circles, but it's more known as, as Passion Week. Passion Week. And uh, it's up to Mel Gibson to bring us a, a great film called The Passion of the Christ. And, uh, and it gives us a real insight into the events of what happened in that week. And before that, I mean, you see the whole deal in Mel's film. You see the, the, you know, everything, the blood and guts, the scourging. It's, it's, it's quite graphic. Before that, we used to have these movies that showed Jesus as this, as this person that sort of floated around in a white robe 14 inches above the ground. And when he got, when he got crucified, he did so without a scar on him apart from the nails. But Mel brings it home and shows what it's really like, what it was really like. And that's coming up next weekend. We celebrate that. We celebrate the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But this week... This week called Passion Week. If the distribution of scripture surrounding it means anything, well, it's important. A fair number of uh, well-known statements of Jesus actually happened in that week. Happened in that, in that week between when he actually came into Jerusalem and then when he was crucified. In Matthew, two-fifths of the book are devoted to that week. In, Lu- in Mark, three-fifths of the book uh, devoted to that week. In Luke, one-third of the book is devoted to that week. And in John, just short of a half of the book is devoted to this week. The four Gospels have 89 chapters in them together. Four chapters deal with the first 30 years of Jesus' life. 85 chapters are about the last three. And of those 85, 29 chapters are about this week. So I do know something about the Bible. But within those 29 chapters, we're going we're gonna to have a look at what happens. The events of this week, we're going to pick up a couple of them because they actually have meaning for us down the track. The other side of the cross, they have meaning for us and we can apply them. So there's an unusual waiting in Scripture on this particular week. So we should devote our attention to it. It's probably the most significant week in human history culminating in the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Easter weekend, the events of which, well, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be here. You know, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us 
that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith would be futile. We would still be in our sin and be most miserable. But he did, and we're not, and so we're here, which is a great theological statement. So let's read about the events of the day. And it's a good read too. We're going to read John chapter 12 in the message. But just before we do, let's just, let's just commit this to God and let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a welcoming God and that this is a welcoming week that we're looking at. Father, we just ask that you help us to understand more about you and what you want us to do, how you want us to, to look at you, how you want us to perceive you. Father, we just pray for, Lord, uh, your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth as we read this passage together. In Jesus' name, and we all say, and John chapter 12 in the message, verse 12. Since the next day, the huge crowd that had arrived for the feast heard that Jesus was entering Jerusalem. They broke off palm branches and went out to meet him, and they cheered, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in God's name. Yes, the king of Israel. Jesus got a young donkey and rode it, just as the scripture has it. No fear, daughter Zion, see how your king comes riding a donkey's colt. Verse 16, the disciples didn't notice the fulfillment of many scriptures at the time, but after Jesus was glorified, they remembered that what was written about him matched what was done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, was there giving eyewitness accounts. It was because they had spread the word of this latest God's sign that the crowd swelled to a welcoming parade. The Pharisees took one look and threw up their hands. It's out of control. The world's in a stampede after him. Try to get a picture of, of the city. This is, this is an easy week to get a picture of first century Jerusalem. It's an easy week to do that. But try and get a picture. Matthew's gospel says that the city was shaken. It was agitated. Another translation says that the city was on edge. Have you ever been in a city that's on edge? Three years ago, three years ago this week, actually, I was, in, I was in Durban the night before the Durban riots of 2015 started. It was, you could feel the tension in the air. It was, you could cut it with a knife. Like we were driving into church in Durban and it had already started. There were actually dead bodies laying along the side of the road. And in, in the church car park, people were actually having fights over car parks and things like that. And, and later on when we drove home, there was all sorts of nonsense going on in the street. And the next day it just broke out and, and there was riots. Police had fire hoses trying to control the crowds. That's what it was like. And the closest thing Ipswich has probably had was the 1996 election. If you cast your mind back to that. <laughs> that was when this city was last set on edge. I won't refer to anything in particular. Just use your imagination. I wonder just because I've read to the end of the story and I know what happens, but I wonder if actually any of the participants in that crowd knew what was going on that day. They thought one thing, but something completely different was happening. The disciples had said they didn't know, they didn't recognize, they didn't match it up with any scripture. They would later on, but at that time they hadn't. In the following weeks after Jesus' death and resurrection, the penny dropped. There was a lot of aha moments Lazarus gets a, men, a mention there Lazarus who Jesus uh, called out from the grave raised him from the dead 
the first thing you notice is that the text tells us that the crowd had gathered because of this miracle that Lazarus had actually told everyone and all the people who had seen it had told everyone and they had come out to see Jesus. So that had swelled the crowd. So there was a big crowd there. See, Jesus was friends with this guy called Lazarus and his sister, Mary and Martha, in a, in a village down the road from Jerusalem called Bethany. And anyway, when news reached Jesus a few days before this, that Lazarus had died or was dying. And Jesus actually delayed arriving back in Bethany to to see Lazarus before he died he actually delayed it and made sure that Lazarus was well and truly dead because he said he wanted to perform a sign so his disciples would believe but raising Lazarus from the dead was more than just a sign it was actually the point of no return for Jesus this time he didn't ask anyone to keep it quiet you know how Jesus would say he'd perform a miracle and he'd say don't tell anyone this time he didn't do that because the Pharisees were, had Jesus under surveillance. They'd been staking out his teaching sessions and they were watching him like a hawk. And, they, and it was this miracle, the Bible said, that pushed the Pharisees' hands. It forced their hand. And they decided then that they were going to uh, put in place measures to kill Jesus. So Jesus knew what it would be from here on in, that it would be a slippery slope to the cross And he was on a line of eternity and he grits his teeth and enters into Jerusalem. Let's let's look for a minute at the, the prophetic dates that are involved here. All of this happens on the 10th day of the Jewish month of Nisan or the 6th of April in our calendar. The Passover was later in the week, was on the 14th day of Nisan. This was predicted in the book of Daniel, predicted by date. There was a former head of Scotland Yard, a guy called Sir Robert Anderson, who wrote a book called The Coming Prince, where he investigated these dates and the accuracy and the veracity of of these dates and and the accuracy of the prophecy. And he used the Babylonian slash Hebrew calendar, which is a lunar calendar, not like our calendar, which is a solar calendar. And it worked out to the day that it was April 6th, 32 AD. And that was the day Jesus entered the city. So, prophetically accurate. But what's with the donkey? The donkey was also prophesied in the book of Zechariah, but hardly a vehicle fit for a king. This is like driving into town on a, in a Commodore when a Lamborghini is called for. Yeah, it's... Unless you're an absolute Holden nut, then it probably doesn't matter. So you'd expect a king to come riding into town on a black stallion in, in an appropriate robe, the right colour, trimmed with gold, his hair blown by unseen wind. And, and you can't see the six-pack, but you know it's there. That's how a king comes to town. We can go on about how a donkey is the humble ride of a humble Messiah and that all makes a good story but it's actually not quite correct and and while it's all wonderful what was happening here was Jesus carefully and deliberately thumbing his nose at the Romans see when a Roman general conquered a city what they would do is they would have a welcome parade like a ticker tape parade like we would do but a welcome parade and the general would actually 
ride into town on a donkey. This was actually symbolic of a conqueror. So while the Jews were scratching their heads thinking, donkey, king, I don't know, the Romans knew exactly what was going on. They were watching a conqueror come to town. The people thought that they were about to witness a military coup. They're saying to Jesus, Hosanna, Hoshiana, which means save now, save now. They were wanting an immediate action, an immediate military coup, overthrow the Romans and give the territory back to Israel under control of the temple. That was what they wanted. But Jesus, instead of going down to the Roman garrison at the the fortress of Antonio, he makes a beeline straight to the religious people, to the temple. That's where he goes. He heads for church. The traders were in the temple. It was the 10th day of Nisan. We've already said that, but what's important about that is that was the day that Jewish families selected their lamb for the Passover. So all the traders were in there with their lambs for sale. So it was sort of like, in terms of the money changes in the temple, it was like the Boxing Day sale. That's the equivalent, or Black Friday. That's what it was. It was, a big, it was their biggest day of the year in terms of making money. And then Jesus walks in there, and he overturns the tables of the money changes, and he, and he chased them out, those who sold livestock and doves. He signified that the covenant was about to change. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but with a whip. And so he comes in, he overturns the tables, and he signifies by that action the end of the animal sacrifice system. He's actually saying by his action, this is the end, we're going we're to just chop it off here. That's the end of the law and animal sacrifices as, as, as a fulfillment of the law. We're moving into a new dispensation. It's coming. Open your eyes. Look for it. Animal sacrifices would be meaningless within a few days, except that the Jews didn't recognize him as Messiah and kept going on, even though the new dispensation started then. It's the, the old dispensation is one of striving, where everything was up to the individual to recognize your own sin, to bring the right sacrifice, to a covenant where nothing is up to, to us, where everything has already been done. You see the switch, where we had to do everything, but to a point where God has done everything for us. Even though now we live in that covenant, where God has done everything for us, where he's made a way for us, we still find ourselves, people still find themselves in that old mindset of sin and sacrifice. I sin, so I have to come and, and repent. And we, we have to do that, but it just ends up being sin management, week in, week out, just trying to stay one step ahead of our appetites instead of living in the fullness of what God has for us. And that's why the Pharisees hated Jesus, because Jesus was more appealing than their religion. What he had to offer was more appealing than the year-in, year-out feasts, sacrifices. This is what we've got to do, bring the right offering. Jesus was a breath of fresh air in a stale and stagnant religious climate. Because of that, there was a clash between the old and the new, between the stodgy old religious system and the new thing that Jesus was offering. But it was a one-sided clash. All the Pharisees had to offer was a lifeless system. Religion, by definition, is form 
without relationship. It's when you're going through the motions. You can still be in a religious system today. You can live in a religious system. You can come to church. You can pay tithes. You can raise your hand. But if there is no relationship, if there is no connection with God, if there is no backwards and forwards communication, then it just becomes form. And it's it, it, still going to heaven. No problem. But there's so much more in the present, in the now. Against that, Jesus was ushering in a relationship with a living God, a one-on-one, face-to-face relationship, an encounter with a good, good Father and an indwelling Holy Spirit to comfort and to guide and empower. And that was brand new. That was something else. Jesus would speak about it to his disciples later that week. And we're just going to read a passage just to get the feel of how this was, going, how this was changing. Jesus was, was actually he was speaking to the disciples in that week about what it was going to look like what it was going to look like, the other side of the weekend, how things were going to change. And we find a passage in John chapter 15. We're going to just start reading at verse 5. It says, I am the vine, vine, you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is dead wood, gathered up and thrown on the bonfire. But if you make yourselves at home with me and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. This is how my father shows who he is when you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples. Verse 9, I've loved you the way my father has loved me. Make yourselves at home in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain intimately at home in my love. That's what I've done kept my father's commands and made myself at home in his love. What chance did the Pharisees have against that? Against an intimate relationship with a good father. That's what Jesus was bringing. The Pharisees' product had, had run, run over time. See, you can tell how much the Pharisees feared him because of the exaggeration. That verse 19 at the end of the passage we first read, it said, the Pharisees took one look at him and threw up their hands. It's out of control. The world's in a stampede after him. The world was in a stampede after him. There was Peter, James, and John, Matthew, Nathaniel, Philip, Judas, Martha, Mary, Mary, and Mary. That's 11. There was a few more but it wasn't that the whole world had gone after it. But, but in the Pharisees' eyes, he was taking over, and that was right. He was taking over. But they did have a point. People from all levels of society were comfortable with Jesus. Everyone. His most scathing words were for the religious elite of the day. He used to say, woe unto you, you hypocrites. And then he'd unload on them. But the common people heard him gladly the bible says and at that passover they said jesus is in town let's go and find him so here's the contrast religion that the pharisees had emphasizes the outward you have to appear to have it all right you have to appear to be doing the right things making the right sacrifice but jesus emphasized the inward religion is the requirement to perform but jesus was more concerned about the heart behind the response 
you could say, isn't this, isn't this what we do here? Isn't that religion? No, it's not. We are all about relationship, relationship with God, relationship with people. Religion is about what you can't do. Jesus is about what you can do. Religion is about prohibition. Thou shalt not. It was a time when Christians were known for what they wouldn't do. But now Jesus wants to say to us, come to me as you are and see what I can do in your life. See what I can do through you. I can connect you with, your, with God's blueprint for your life. If your whole experience with God is about what you don't do, then you're missing out on what God has for you. Jesus, through his death, made us acceptable to the Father and we get to participate in his plans. We get to be a royal priesthood. We get to participate in reclaiming the earth for the Father. It's probably a little bit more exciting than how you're re- responding. Okay? There was barriers in the temple. Jesus, religion puts up barriers. Jesus takes down barriers. In the temple that Jesus visited, there were barriers. See, if we went to the temple in those days, most of us wouldn't be able to get past what was called the court of the Gentiles because we're not, we weren't Jewish. We couldn't go. We could only go to a certain point. We hear the story in the book of Acts about the Ethiopian eunuch who had just been to the temple. But did he get in? He might have got into the court of the Gentiles because he was, a, he was an Ethiopian. He was a Gentile. But he wouldn't have got in at all because he was a eunuch. The law said he couldn't go in. So the law, religion of the day, excluded people. But Jesus said, no, everyone's welcome. See, exclusion is not kingdom. Well, it's a different kingdom. It's the kingdom of darkness. The enemy's mission is to separate us and then turn us on one another. It's like a plane crash and survivors on a desert island all fighting over one box of cheesels. Yeah, we, we, we turn in on each other and fight with each other. But Paul's rebuke to the Corinthians, he said, he said don't follow so-and-so and don't follow so-and-so. And, you know, one says, I'm of, I'm, of, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Jesus. He says, knock it off. That's attacking our wholeness. That's attacking our unity. See, the Greek word for the accuser is categorous. And that's what he does. He separates us into categories and then we, we fight for our territory. That's how the enemy operates. And this is, this is how it was in the temple. So it was religion versus Jesus. So let's talk for a minute more about the temple. The temple, a couple of days later, Jesus is there with his disciples. And they're, they're looking around, they're having, checking it out. And the disciples are admiring the architecture. And Jesus says, don't get too impressed. Before long, this is going to be torn down. No stone will be left upon another stone. It's going to be a pile of rubble. And again, he was speaking of the cessation of worship in the temple. In a couple of days, as Jesus breathed his last on the hill overlooking the city, then a new thing would happen. The veil in the temple that separated people from God the presence of God lived inside the Holy of Holies, the, the, the curtain that separated God from the people would just be torn in half, signifying forever that God's presence was available to everyone in a new and different way, not just to one person once a year. You had to be a high priest of the tribe of Levi. You had to go through ceremonial preparations before you could even walk in 
to the presence of God. And then you had to make the right offerings. But now the, the, the temple, the, the curtain in the temple was torn into. God's presence was available to everyone. And so what happened to the stones? Well, Peter later on draws an example. He says that we are meant to be living stones that we make now the, the temple. Us together, each one of us as a stone together containing the presence of God would be the temple. He says that we are living stones built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Before this, you had to, you had to be a certain type of person to enter the presence of God. But now you and I every day can carry the presence of God with us. Get excited, folks. It's really good. It's really good. This was the law, but Jesus was about to fulfill the law and take on himself the penalty for our sin. And the whole game would shift from God living in a place to God living in people. So we move through this week and Jesus eats the Passover with his disciples. Then later that evening, they head out into a garden. And we're going to read about the passage in Gethsemane in the book of Mark chapter 14 says this, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you, Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, he comes to the point of asking, of saying, Father, not my will, but yours. But he doesn't start there. He starts with, can this cup be taken from me? He's checking in with God to see that the plan was going ahead. The next day was not something Jesus wanted to go through if the plan had changed. So he's checking in. And so he's actually saying in the statement, not my will but yours, is really not my expectation but your capacity. I won't limit you. I'm going to put my hope in how you work this out, whatever you come up with. And although Jesus doesn't get the answer he wants, he resolves the heart. The matter is settled in his heart. He's prepared to go to the cross. He ends up at trust and trust is a requirement. It's looking to the Father and recognizing who he is and who he's been. We have to look back to eternity at the flow of God being perfect, at working things out for good. Not ever in all of eternity has God failed at working things out. Back from eternity and through our moment and on into eternity, he keeps his perfect record. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He never fails. And this is the one that we're deciding on whether or not we should trust. Yeah? There's a flow of God's perfection in working things out that comes from eternity and into our situation. And we can live with expectancy that he will work it out for my good. I don't know how. He gives us the option to trust him or not. How many know that we can get to be as stressed as we want, but God is working out every day, 
every day. He's working out. He's working in your process. He's working your problem out. He's working for your, on your behalf. It may not seem like it. It may be that circumstances dictate otherwise, but he is working it out for your good. All things work together for good. It's a matter of staying focused and trust in the moment, yeah? So finally, we jump into the future. Jesus looks down the years and he sees something that he thinks of as a bride. And that's, that's us. That's all of us. Such is the depth of his relationship with us that he looks at us as a bride. He feels love towards us as a husband would towards a bride. He feels affection. See, this was the joy set before him. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And see, all of us together, all of us, his bride, us together, us corporately, us individually, make up that bride. And that makes up the joy that was set before him, that enabled him to endure the cross. You see, all of what Jesus went through was in order for us to be a part of a family. Jesus gets into every space. The Bible says he fills all in all. He's already in your situation, whether you follow him or whether you don't, because he came to earth and he lived as Ben Adam, the son of man. He lived as a human. While he was human, he was still God. Mystery, but it's true. Because he came to earth and he lived as a man, he's always linked to the human race. He's always about our problems. The Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Always, ever lives to make intercession for us. You don't have to do anything to move God. He was already moved. He was moved enough that while we were yet separated from him, while we were yet living lives that didn't take us towards him, that he sent his son to die for us. Maybe you thought that to, to be a Christian, you really had to work hard to achieve a certain standard of behavior and then you'd find acceptance in church. It's not how it works. Jesus drew us into himself and he paid the price for everything to be settled. The issue of our sin is settled. The issue of our guilt is settled. All of these things were already taken care of at Calvary and it's an invitation to discover the full extent of what God has for us. It's not now about, oh, I've got, to, I, I've got to watch what I do. I've got to watch what I beha- how I behave. I've got to watch this. Oh, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry, God. I've got to sacrifice an animal. It's not like that. It's about, now, God, where are we going? What's the future look like? What have you got for me? What's my inheritance? And we pursue sonship. We pursue inheritance. We pursue identity in him and not just that he's the forgiver of our sins. Of course he's that, but that's an entry point, Yeah. Maybe you've had enough of participating in the chaos and maybe you want to have some of the peace that God has for you. It's a place of rest, resting in him, where we don't have to strive, where we don't have to keep up appearances, where we don't have to struggle with our, with our own appetites to be acceptable to God because of Jesus. You have to, you have to do something with Jesus and if the musicians could... join me you have to do something with him 
because of, of what he did, we, we actually we have to do something with him. If you don't know him, then you have to make a decision about who he is. If you do know him, are you available to his purpose? Are you living a life where it, he's just your ticket out of sin or ticket out of your ticket into heaven? Or is he the plan giver, the purpose giver, the fulfilling person who you have a relationship with every day? Is he that? Or is he someone that you have a relationship with once a week for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning? Which is it? Which is it? Maybe your idea of following Jesus is one of trying to keep a set of rules that it's impossible to keep. Or maybe you think that Jesus is wrapped up in scholastic theology that it's impossible for you to understand. Just as the person of Jesus rode into Jerusalem all those years ago on a donkey, the person of Jesus is alive today. He's active today and he has a drive for relationship with you. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What, then to stand back and watch from a distance as you struggle through anything? No, he has a drive to be involved in your life on every level, on every level, in everything, in every situation. From when you're sitting in church worshipping with your hands raised to when you're wiping baby poo off your seat in the car. He wants to be involved in everything. From that to that. He wants to be involved. And the God who pulled this all together, who made the prophecies happen, who made the dates line up over hundreds and hundreds of years down to the day, do you think he might be able to work out your problem? Do you think he might be able to sort out your life? He can can align the planets. He can move people in such a way that, that a prophecy happens on a particular day that he's predicted, he can sort out our issues. He can sort out our relationships. He can help us be better parents. He can help us be better employees. He can be involved in everything that we do. Whatever background you come from, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, and I don't mean just getting saved. I mean surrendered your life to him made a commitment to come before him daily and meet with him daily just for relationship's sake, not to put forward a, 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 a list of requests of what you need done, but to come and meet with him on a relational basis, to sit quietly and hear his voice, to be involved in him, to be have him involved in us. If my words abide in you and his words abide in us, that's what Jesus said. Maybe you see yourself as a Christian. Maybe you've, you know, for whatever reason, you've, you've drifted away. Maybe there's, you, you want to serve him, but there's a distance between you and God. And, and you're just starting to have an understanding that that distance needn't be. It needn't be. That God has taken care of it. He's sorted it out. He sent Jesus, and Jesus has closed the gap completely. So there's nothing between. There's no need for you to feel separate or excluded or out of the picture. You can step into that blueprint that he has for your life. You actually wondered, could this be true? Could it all be true? Could it be that there's something greater for me than just my day-to-day existence? It is true. 
I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, Jeremiah 29. Plans for your welfare and not for your calamity to give you a future and a hope. Do you have a future and a hope? Do you, when you see Jesus, do you see the future or do you see the past? Because the past has been dealt with. It all happened on Calvary. It all happened in that week when Jesus rode into town as a king, but later on got crucified as a criminal. And he did that gladly so we could have a connection with the Father. Amen? Let's pray. Just as we begin to settle in and the musos play, I just want you to consider, just consider Jesus. Think about what he did. Think about where you are with him. Think about how close you are to him, how connected you are to the Father. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've never said, yes, I want, I want to follow you, then I want to give you an, an opportunity today to surrender your life personally to Jesus, to say, yes, I want to step into the plan that you have. If that's you this morning, I'd just like you to raise your, raise your hand. Put it up. Let me see it. Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. I see that. Yep, yep. Okay, you can put it down. I just, just raise your hand if that's you. If you want to surrender your life to Jesus to say, I want what you have for me. I want the salvation that you offered me. I want to walk in your steps. Maybe you're the other category I mentioned. Someone who has been a Christian maybe for a long time, but you're, you're feeling distance. You feel distance between Jesus and you. You feel distance between his plans and you. If that's you this morning, I want to pray for you too. Would you just show me who you are? Raise your hand. Let me know if that's you. If you're feeling distance, yes. Yes, thank you. Can you put your hand down? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Anyone else before we pray? Anyone else? Thank you, yes, I see it, I see it. Okay, let's pray. Father God, you've seen the hands that have been raised this morning, Lord God. You, you know the response of the heart, Lord God. You know the hearts behind the hands that were raised, Lord God. And I pray that you would right now meet with them, Lord God, that you would, you would visit yourself upon each of the lives represented by those hands raised. Father, I pray for an encounter to begin, Lord, here. For, the, for those who, who are surrendering their lives, Lord God, I pray, for Lord, that you would meet them, that you would, in, over time, become their, their God, their source, their go-to person for every moment of their lives. And Lord, for the ones who are, who are experiencing distance, Lord God, I pray that you would visit yourself upon their situation, that you would bring yourself into their situation, that your presence might be tangible, that, Lord, that you would teach them in your ways, that you would teach them how to connect with you. We pray in Jesus' name. And we all say...